Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD homicide sergeant with just under 27 years. And this is sort of a subsidiary of Police Off the Cuff. And this is my show called Real Crime Stories. And this is the first episode of 2021. So what better way to bring in 2021 to bring in a guest who I've been trying to get for a while. And he's actually an NYPD superstar. And uh, he's known to a lot of people, not just in New York City, but internationally, believe it or not, as a hostage trainer. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome retired NYPD Lieutenant Jack Cambria. Well, hello there, Bill and audience. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a big honor for me. You know, Jack, I got your uh, your sidekick, uh, James Shanahan, on the show, and I was like, hey, when am I going to get Jack uh, Cambria on? Oh, you know. Uh. But uh, I love James. He's a he's a great guy, too. And w one day maybe we'll have both of you on. It'll be a real laugh fest, you know. Yeah, it's a rollercoaster ride with Jim, for sure. <laughs> you know, Bill, I, I, uh, I first met Jim. I took over the hostage team back in uh, 2001, and I met Jim shortly thereafter, you know, at, at, a, at a training meeting that we were doing. And I recognized the talent in him from that very first meeting. So I latched onto him almost immediately and dragged him into uh, to the hostage world. He became my primary instructor and uh, also, of course, a hostage negotiator. Brilliant. Yeah, he's a, you know he's a character too. I mean, that's one of the things he why he was such a great teacher is because I taught college for ten and a half years and I taught at CIC for six years uh, at the NYPD. And one of the reasons I think I was a popular instructor was because. I injected a lot of humor into the uh, the yeah. lesson I did, you know, because I remember the guy who taught what I taught previously. It was he was like watching paint dry, you know, because because I took his course in CIC, and I won't tell you yeah. who it is, but he was boring as all hell. So I said, when I when I teach this, these guys are going to be laughing, you know, and, uh, and I think I kept my promise, you know. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a different audience. You know, cops don't want to be in a training environment; they don't want to be in a classroom; they want to be out playing. So I, I think, uh, and I, I do the same. I learned a lot of my uh, my training techniques uh, from James Shanahan, but um, you have to make it entertaining for them. You have to put on a show, uh, so to speak. No, absolutely, because they speak the same language, and uh, you know, cop humor is a certain type of humor. You know, you know, yeah, you know, I do stand up comedy, and sometimes they tell some cop jokes to people that aren't cops, and they're like, "Hey, that's not funny," you know. <laughs> But they have to understand it indeed. But yeah, they're accustomed to going to training classes. Uh, and Jim speaks about this. About remember borough-based training? Oh yeah. You know, it's like uh, they go in there and uh, it'd be they'd be talking about airborne pathogens or the safe handling of hypodermic needles. You know. Absolutely. So uh, when you go in there, as you said, by inserting the humor and making relating to their level, uh, it just makes it easy for you and for them. The enjoyable experience. Well, how many how many ways did someone use the joke accidental discharge in a sexual manner, right? I mean, come on, to, to cops that means a certain thing, you know. The oh, you had an accidental discharge at the range, but that's a funny uh, expression. Oh yeah, exactly. Not you can use it in many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jack, I wanted to just uh, get a little background on you. Where where'd you grow up? So I'm a Brooklyn guy. Um, broadcasting to you here from Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn. Yeah, born and raised, and. Um, and uh, pretty much worked in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, then I worked other places as well. But yeah, uh, so did you go from a cop to lieutenant in the seven two? So I did, uh, but not not consecutively. So um, my career chronology is very easy to put on on paper, Bill. Actually, so I was a police officer in the seven two, so Brooklyn South, Sunset Park section of Brooklyn, um, and then I got into emergency service after about five years or so. 
And uh, I spent um, about five years also in emergency service and I got promoted to sergeant and I went back to the 7-2. I stayed there about two years, uh, a little more than two years as a sergeant. And then I got invited back to emergency service as a sergeant. And then when I got promoted to lieutenant, back to the 7-2 and then back to uh, ESU as a lieutenant. But well, I Jack, they, they must have liked you, man, because they kept bringing you back. We would say well, on this show, we say a guy like that is balls are dipped in butter, you know? <laughs> oh, I had a calm career. Let me tell you about <laughs> it. Um, a quick a quick anecdote. So just when I was just about to get promoted to the tank, so, I, so I'm in emergency service. I worked out of uh, I worked out of truck six, which is housed in the six eight precinct, but it covered um, 13 different precincts throughout Brooklyn South. So of course the neighboring precinct was the seven two. So I was like a week away from getting promoted. I already got notified next week, you know, report and so on. So I want to go back to the seven two because I know it. I'm comfortable there. And I love the community, and they kind of knew me as well. So I went back to the uh, the CEO of uh, of the seven two precinct, a guy named uh, Jimmy Lapedra at the time. Uh, he was a deputy inspector, and his sister. I worked with his sister, who also worked in the precinct, Deborah Lapedra. Uh -huh. And we worked together in the, the CPOP unit and the community policing and all that, right? In the 72 and I was top. So I went back to him and I said, uh, hey, Inspector, you know, I'm going to be promoted next week. Uh, a police officer sergeant here. I'd love to come back as a lieutenant, you know, I'm trying to sell it to him. And he says, no way. What do you mean? No way. He says, I'm going to take you back. And within within two or three months, the issue is going to call you and take you right back He's again. Right. <laughs> Just, well, no, Inspector, you know, there's never any guarantee of that, you know, I, you know. So his sister hears about this. She goes to the brother, says, you better take Jack Cambria back. You know, so he had like no choice, you know. So he takes me back, you know, and sure enough, dollars to donuts, the notification comes in after two months. They invited me back to issue as a lieutenant. So now I have to knock on his door, right? Yeah. Say, Inspector, you got a minute? Yeah, what do you want, Jack? Telephone message just came down going back to ESU. Um, you see me there, Jim? Um, I want to pull up a great picture of you, Jack. Oh, okay. Which says so, everything. Got it. That, doesn't that say it all, Jack? Because you can't be a sergeant, you can't be a lieutenant, you can't be a captain without first being a cop. Right? Oh, there. That's what you're looking at. Yeah. That's right? in the seven two. It's in the seventh confines of the seven two. And, and that's a great picture. That says, you know, that says it all. It's like the cop sitting on the uh, on the the stool with the little kid next to him, right? There you Buy go. Him breakfast, right? No, there you go. There you so go. I remember when I used to teach college, kids would come up to me and go, "I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a cop. I just want to go straight to homicide." I said, "Yeah, me too. I wanted that too, but it took me seventeen years to get there." Oh my right? god! Yeah, 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 indeed. So. Uh... So that's anyway, just finish the story. So the inspector said, get the out of here. I told you I'm going to kick your ass. He told me. <laughs> nah, you understand, inspector, you know, well, you, and he was a, he was a sergeant in the Staten Island emergency service over there. They called it HESI at the time, Highway Emergency Service. Yeah. Get out of here. So, but uh, yeah, indeed, funny stuff. You know something, Jack, a lot of people uh, that listen to our show, actually, we have fans all over the world now. Uh, they don't know what emergency service is, but they know what SWAT is. And if you say to someone in New York City, oh, you guys are SWAT, and they say, no, 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 we're emergency service. We don't want to be connected with California. That's California shit. We're ESU, ES, ESS, they used to call it emergency service squad. And it's very, you know, it's very different because you guys do everything. You don't want to be just known as a SWAT team. Tell, pe tell people what 
emergency services role is, what their job yeah, is. Yeah, so, you know, there's a saying that very popular saying and all NYPD officers would know about it. And it is uh, when a citizen needs help, they call the police. When the police need help, they call ESU. I love saying that, by the way. But emergency services has a, is a multifunctioned uh, type of unit, unlike uh, SWAT teams. SWAT teams are, are exclusively SWAT. The special weapons and tactics, that's all they do. They train, uh, you know, all week long, uh, and hopefully they get that job and they're ready for it. So emergency service does, does do that. But in emergency service, you'll go from one job of going to a, a door in a uh, high-risk warrant situation with the helmets, the vest, the machine guns, to the very next job of maybe taking a cat out of a tree. Right. It's a very diversified type of unit. Uh, it's a rescue, high rescue, uh, high risk rescue unit as well. So um, someone is contemplating suicide on, on top of the Brooklyn Bridge, for example, it would be the emergency service unit that would be uh, tasked with climbing up the girder and trying. Well, to Well, Jack, isn't that part of your training that you have to climb uh, a bridge to the top the of the bridge as part of yeah. the training? The you're, not af- you're not afraid of heights? No, that's uh, probably a prerequisite. You can't be afraid of heights in order to do that. I now. think I would have been like. <laughs> <laughs> I never, like, I never like rooftops or fire escapes. I'd be like, climb down them, but I wouldn't like it, you know? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, guys looking to climb over your back to get up there first, you know? Yeah, because so, they want uh, they, they want that star. Don't you? There you go. They, maybe there's a medal. In they it. want a commendation, so I'm going to climb. Go. There you go. So, but, yeah, that's part of it. And, uh, in fact, we used to train on Sunday, early Sunday mornings. Uh, we had a, uh, a liaison with the, the MTA, uh, uh, Tribal Bridge and Tunnel Authority, and we'd go up uh, – on different bridges early Sunday morning, they'd be nice enough to close one lane off for us so we can train, train, also photo op as well, right? Right. And we'd do that and uh, just constant practicing, but yeah. Hey, didn't they, didn't they call uh, truck one the Hollywood truck? Because those guys yeah. were always, uh, you got always it. getting and photo yeah, ops. Media, yeah, that's where the media would hang out. You know, so, uh, you know, they don't want to travel to Brooklyn, the news media. So, you know, it's easier for them because that's where they work. Right. The jobs in Manhattan, so we used to tease them. Look, I, I love the ESU as a sergeant, but even like as an investigative sergeant, a lot of times if you have a shooting, you have to call them there to do the ballistic search. Sure. And they used to hate that. Why are we here? Dude, <laughs> Just I just got to check a box on the 49 that you were here. Go ahead, go leave, go climb a bridge, you know, but <laughs> exactly. don't bust my balls. I got to call you here, you know. <laughs> and we can get involved also with the, with the uh, more. Um, uh, difficult types of, of searches, so elevator shafts, for example, and sewers and things like that, which are the. Uh, you know, Jack, it took it took me years to figure out what a triple O elevator was. You know, <laughs> I was like, "What the hell is that?" Oh, out of order. <laughs> there you go. There you See, go. if you're housing, you know that day one, I wasn't housing. You know, there you go. And of course, when people are stuck in elevators, always at the very top floor, you had to climb up oh, yeah. 15 stories of your equipment. So, you know, I remember one time there was this detective from Manhattan robbery and he'll go nameless, but he had, he had a case on the 15th floor and he was obese and the elevator was out and you had to see his face, man. I was yeah. just like, yeah, yeah. all right, just take a floor every 10 minutes. So, you know, <laughs> don't do them all at once. You pace yourself. Yeah, indeed. But, uh, again, uh, it was, it was an amazing unit. I spent uh, probably in, in total about 16 years. Uh, in emergency service, in the three Jack, ranks. that's that's unbelievable in itself. Yeah. A, a career, and you, your career was almost thirty-four years. 
Yes. So 16 of that ESU, which ESU is ESU in the three ranks. Uh, my last 14 were as uh, the commander of the hostage negotiation team. That was another charm assignment. We're, we're, we're going to get there. Let's let's yeah. go slowly through your ESU ESU career because sure. one of the things that people all over the world don't realize there was two attacks on the World Trade Center, 1993, which was a, a truck bomb, yeah. and of course we know 2001. And you were at both of them, right? Yeah, I was correct. What was your role in 1993? So uh, I was a police officer in the emergency service, and uh, it was the uh, rescue initially, you know, and uh, they found um, there were six actual victims in that case that had perished as a result of that. And they were, they were very deep in the, you know, in the, the lower floors in the garage area. That, that, that bomb made a tremendous cr uh, crater, right, in the building? It did, it did. And those six that were found were found mostly in that area there pretty much everybody else got out thank thank goodness and uh you know, there was no collapse of the actual building but just you know the greater crater is, the, is a great description for what it right. was so so it was just that it was just digging through rubble uh, of course all the investigative units were there atf and uh, you know our austin explosion squad and all that and they came up with a with a vin plate of the truck that was used and that's how it led to uh, and I, and I love the part about the perps going back to get their deposit. I love that you can't make that shit up, right? You know, Jack. And now they, they're going to try to stop you from using the word perpetrator. I I get suspended. I think I couldn't stop using that word. What are you going to call him? A client from the other side? What are you going to call him? Remember? Yeah, I do. You know, I judge my audience. So the cops, of course, it's it's perps. You know. Right. And other people, and, you know, the, the criminals. The defendant. The defendant. <laughs> there you go. It's it's crazy shit that the, the way the vernacular is even changing, you know, that. Uh, so in, in, in 1993, that bomb was close to bringing the building down too, right? Yeah, you know, um, they, they put it against the main support pillar, you know, so they thought. and um, But, of course, there were many main support pillars. So they... Um, you know, they took out one, but that was pretty much it, you know, and uh, it caused substantial damage and, and it also, uh, you know, changed the way that they dealt with their security issues as well. It was a little easier to get into that tunnel at the time. Anybody that right. you go in there, maybe pay a, you know, get a ticket and then you pay it on the way out. Well, you know, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about security over the years from 9-11 and from other things. I mean, I remember in... Um, you know, I was in anti-crime for six and a half years. And in the, they used to call these people, these delivery people, uh, creepers. Are you familiar with that term, creeper? I'm not. What I'm it not. was, they used to let delivery guys bring food right up into buildings. And while they were up there, they would help themselves to a woman's pocketbook or you know, steal this or steal that. I mean, when you think about the craziness of just allowing any delivery guy to go right into the any building and deliver food. So that that whole policy was changed across the city. I think it happened in police headquarters once, right? Uh, there were like four or five or six computers, you know, laptops, when when stolen. You know, for somebody that was up there that wasn't supposed to be up there. So yeah, I would have loved to have left that one off at Comstat. You know, you let headquarters security let five guys come. You know, yeah, yeah, I'd love sure. to see that. Where's the where's the CEO of headquarters security? Oh, I'm sure you heard. About that. I'm sure you heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. That is crazy, you know. So uh, now let's uh, just fast forward a little bit to um, 2001, 9-11. Mm -hmm. Now you were a lieutenant at that time? 
I was. I just um, got into the hostage team like five weeks before. So uh, mid-July, I was in that assignment as the, as the commander of the hostage team. And of course, it's September 11th coming. So when that happened, um, Bill Morange, who was the chief of patrol at the time, he was my CO. He was the CO of SOD, Special Operations Division. He's a great guy, uh, Bill Morange. Oh, oh my God. I think he has the record of the time he spent in the 2-8 as the CO. Yeah, I yeah. He was there for like five or six years. 19 years as a police officer, as I recall, when he yeah. finally asked for Sergeant. I, I know his son is a lieutenant. I don't know if he's still on the job. Augie, uh, yeah. He had special victims. I don't know if he's still on the job, though. Right, right. Yeah, I remember I met his son a couple of times. So um, Bill Moran was the CEO of SOD, which is the parent command of, of the issue. So I worked under him in that capacity. So he knew me very well. And um, he was he might have even been somewhat instrumental in getting me the job with the hostage team, either directly or indirectly. So the day I went for my interview uh, for the hostage negotiation team, my uh, my my boss at the time was a guy by the name of Jeremiah Quinlan. He was an inspector at the time. Yeah, I, I know Quinlan, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I was there in, in a suit, you know, so he wasn't accustomed to see me in a suit. So they said, hey, Jack, what are you doing here? He was Bill Moranch. So oh, I'm going for the job. I'm not just, you know, CEO uh, you know, for an interview. So he says to me, you want that? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's, you know, something, you know, I, I kind of buy into a little bit in the principles of it. So all right, I'm going to give you a call a little bit later. You still have the same cell number? I said, yeah. He calls me, he goes up to Chief Esposito and he goes, hey, Cambria, and Chief Esposito kind of knew me a little bit, you know? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to call the commissioner. So I went up to the commissioner. So indirectly, he kind of went that way. Uh-huh. And uh, I like to think I got it on my own merit, of course. You know, <laughs> but there might have been. Yeah, I, did, I think you're talking about the Italian thing. There was some kind of Italian thing going on there. Actually, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but uh, either directly or indirectly, at least he helped kind of maybe paved the path a little bit for me. Well, that's so, great. That's excellent. Man, yeah. So that's, so that's, uh, so uh, the long and short of it. Then once I, uh, I was agreed upon. I had to go, of course, uh, be approved by Chief Ali at the time. May he rest in peace, Chief of Detectives. I liked Ali. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. He was a yellow, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I liked him. And um, then I had to go before the before I could be approved for it. I had to go before the supervisory board from Internal Affairs. So I said, wait a minute. You know, and nothing, of course, against Internal Affairs. Cambria, because, white socks in 1987. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go from emergency service, citywide lieutenant to if I don't get this job, so he says, just do it. Don't right, worry. right. So it kind of, it kind of went, uh, went okay for me. So uh, that's I, when, for for our listeners, um, please. For years, Internal Affairs got the, not the cream of the crop. They got people that didn't want to do police work. Uh, so geez. to rectify that situation, they started forcing real, the real popo to go to Internal Affairs to do two-year stints and the real popo were not happy with that but it was almost like oh, do your two years and basically it were like you you can have your pickup assignment which wasn't always true but that's what they told you and the theory was that by enforcing this policy esu excuse me uh internal affairs would get some real cops to work in real investigators yeah. Yeah. and I, I don't know if it worked out or not but i know a, a lot of guys that went there that when not happy, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it did make for a better uh, bureau, though, because you had cops who kind of knew the real deal. And uh, if you were off base, well, then shame on you. But if you weren't, they'd, they'd work hard to find that you weren't. You 
Well, you know, Jack, you see some of like, and both of us did uh, a long time in the police department. And I really didn't witness a lot of corruption. I honestly can say that. But yet during my time, you had Michael Dowd. You had the mafia cops. I mean, Ippolito and Caracappa. I mean, there was some, they missed a lot of, sh they missed some big shit, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's because they were looking for white socks. I don't know. I guess, yeah, I guess so. But uh, but I agree with you. I, I never really got up close and personal saw of anything uh, that I would, uh, I would witness. Right. But uh, just, as you said, it did exist. So there, Yeah, there, obviously. And some of the, the bigger there. things they missed, you know? Yeah. Look, it, that kind of stuff, especially something like Dowd, people had said to myself and Mark DeMeo, why don't you have Dowd on your show? I said, I would not sit in the same room as Dowd. Yeah. Yeah. He's a piece of shit. He's an alcoholic drug dealer. That He's no cop. I don't want to talk to him about what a gangster he was because he wasn't a gangster. He was he was a loser, basically, you know? Yeah, he was. He was. So, and they, I, I would never they, speak... They the reputation of the NYPD, you know? So. Yeah, he made it hard for every cop that was on the job then and since, you know, you know, look at the, did you ever watch the doc documentary to seven five? I did. I did. Amazing. Right. The, the part that killed me the most was, uh, the transit cop got killed. His name was Venable. He got killed probably by the same people that Dowd was dealing with. And Dowd's on the screen with tears coming out. I took him in the radio car. Dude, you don't get to be a cop now. All right. Don't act like you're a cop now. Because a cop got shot and killed by your drug dealer friends, you know. No, we're on the same page as that, though. No oh, doubt. Disgusting. Yeah. So, so now in 2001, you were the head of hostage. You weren't in ESU any longer. So, um, yeah. So uh, I just got the job like five weeks before the attack on the trade center, and on that day, so I responded to that, of course. Uh, I was scheduled to do a, a one to nine that day, one in the afternoon, to nine in the evening. Uh -huh. And uh, so this happens, you know, started at eight. 845, 843, I think it was. And uh, in fact, my brother-in-law used to live downstairs and he yells up, Jack, put on the TV. I was getting ready to go to the gym, actually. And I put it on and I, of course, see what everybody else saw. And, and then as I'm watching the second building attacks, uh, the second plane rather attacks the building. So I'm, calling, I'm trying to call headquarters where I, now my office is. And nobody's there. I, I learned later on that everybody was evacuated out of the building. Right. So that would be the next target, right? Cut off the head. You know, of law enforcement, you know, to do that. So finally, I just changed my clothes. I, and I had an unmarked car to kind of take home for a category one because of my position. And I drive and I get to the, uh, the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel at the time. Now, the U, the U uh, Carry uh, Tunnel, Memorial Tunnel. And it had just closed because the first building had just collapsed. Right. All the debris was like funneling out of the Brooklyn side papers and everything, highly smoked. So that was closed. So I made my way to the Brooklyn Bridge. That was closed also, but I was able to get on you know, with my shield and of course with the car. And I get about halfway over the bridge and all of a sudden I'm met with a flood of people, thousands upon thousands of people walking from Manhattan into Brooklyn on right. the, the road where the cars are. So the car was stopped and I'm trying to kind of get my way through tooting the siren with the lights on. And I'm about halfway over the bridge now. All of a sudden I hear the screaming on the radio and I look to the left and I see the second building I, you know, I watched that too from Canal Street. It's the, a, a site that stay with me for the rest of my life. Oh, yeah. Horrifying, right? That was horrifying. And frightening, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. But I finally, I finally, it took me about a half an hour to get over that bridge. It was that slow. And finally made my way over to, uh, you know, to uh, Bessie Street. 
and the west side. And uh, I have to wind up parking the car like six or seven blocks away. Which was a smart thing that you did, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, there's no choice. I mean, there was nowhere to put the car. So I finally stick it somewhere. And I make my way to six or seven blocks. And I wind up uh, seeing one guy that I know. And uh, he was on a uh, bucket brigade. I get on the bucket brigade. I didn't know what else to do. Uh, and, and fortunately, still in my car, I had my um, uh, filter mask and the two you know, breathing apparatus masks. So I put it on and I had my, uh, my, my construction helmet from ASU as well. So I had something, some level of breathing protection at least, because now as we see, uh, you know, so many of our guys- You know what we were using? We were using those red bloods bandanas, you know, like they look like the yeah. four of us were in the bloods gang, you know, but there yeah. was nothing, there was nothing down there yet, you know, and, and that's probably when you breathed in the worst shit those first 12 yeah. hours. Yeah, and as you remember, though, we couldn't even see maybe two feet in front of your That's, face. I know you try to explain that to people how thick the air was. With mm. you couldn't see, you couldn't see a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, that that afternoon, uh, finally, um, Chief Morantz gets in touch with me on my cell phone, and uh, he was the chief of patrol at the time, and he says, "Jack, uh, we're taking back all ESU guys who had left because uh, of their, you know, background background rescue and recovery." Would you be interested? I said, yeah, chief, there's no place else I would need to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was then transferred back to ESU on a temporary assignment at this point. And I remained down at the site almost three months. It was about two and a half months I left there. Like, do, you, do you get checked all the time? Because that's a long so, time to be down there. Yeah, I do. So I, I do the uh, World Trade Center monitoring. Yeah, I, I've been doing that too for, for I don't know, yeah. as long as it's been going on. Yeah, so I try to stay on top of that. Yeah, I mean, that's a long time to actually be on the site, you know. Yeah, yeah, being down there. So hopefully had proper protection, which was uh, you know, doing its job. So yeah, tough times, yeah, there were tough times. And of course, we all lost so many of our, our colleagues, friends. And well, especially you, you were in ESU. Some real great guys from ESU were lost that day. Yeah. In fact, two of them, I had, uh, when I was a lieutenant issue, part of my responsibilities were to uh, interview new people looking to apply to ESU. And then I would make the recommendation to the CO. And uh, two of them, I, I gave the nod to. These guys were great. Uh, it was Special Washington at the time, Ron Washington. And uh, based on my recommendation, he accepted them in, into the unit. So I had some, uh, I guess, a little baggage about that. Yeah. Hide these guys, you know. You know how that goes. You can't second guess yourself, though, man. Yeah. You know, it's uh, like you know, life shit happens, you know. Right. And there's nothing you can do. So anyway, you, you it's hard to believe that this September is 20 years since 9/11. Yeah. It's unbelievable that it's 20 years have gone by, and you know, it seems like some people are trying to push to forget about it. You know, and I was real pissed when they tried to not even have. Remember they tried to not have the ceremony this year because of COVID and all of that stuff? Right, yeah. yeah. You know, and you can't, we can't ever let them get away with not remembering it in the proper way, you know. Yeah. If people want to read those names for 50 years, they should be allowed to. That's right. You know, so. All right, so, you know, one thing I want to cover about hostages, and I'm sure you would love this too, is that let's recognize the people that started hostage. Wasn't there a guy, uh, Captain Frank Bowles, Right. Um, there was a, who was the second guy after him? And, uh, well, you know, you also have to mention, uh, Dr. Harvey Slosberg, who was a detective on our job, um, uh, who had his PhD in forensic psychology. 
Okay. So a real, real brief, brief history of this because it's a, it's a little involved. But there were four incidents that the NYPD looked at at the time. So before I even get to that, the NYPD hostage negotiation team does have some bragging rights. That is, it is the first hostage negotiation team ever established in the entire world. Really. So it all started in New York City, and it was based on four incidents that had occurred during that time period. Um, the first one was Attica prison riots, as you would remember for sure. Right. Uh -huh. 1970, uh, 1971. That's when Rockefeller said, take the prison back, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a famous picture of uh, Rockefeller giving the middle finger, you know, I'll do it to the audience. Yeah. Giving the middle <laughs> finger um, in the newspapers, right? Imagine a politician giving an order like that today. Oh, no, like, no. Imagine Cuomo Cuomo be like, I didn't do it. I didn't say it, you know. Yeah, exactly. After the shit went bad. Right. <laughs> And that started over, you know, uh, conditions in the in the, uh, in the facility there, you know, uh, food, all of that, whatever their, you know, their complaints were, and that's how it all started. And after I think it was four days, uh, the, uh, the William you know, William Kunstler was their attorney. That's right. Look at you. Look at yeah. you. I remember the history, you know. Yeah, and the end result of that, there was uh, thirty nine um, inmates uh, were killed, ten correction officers. And two other staff members were killed as a result of that. So the NYPD looked at that at the time, but they considered that, you know what, it's hundreds of miles from the borders of New York City. It's confined within the walls of a, of a correctional facility. So we know about it. 